This podcast is presented by SoCalREN, the Southern California Regional Energy Network. We're a collection of local governments that come together to promote energy efficiency programs for residents, businesses, and public agencies. Welcome to Re-Energizing Communities, your connection to conversations about energy efficiency that can help you influence change at home, at work, and in your community. Thanks so much for joining us. In today's episode, our host, Chris Ford, sits down with Christine Merez, Vice President of Cumming Corporation. They talk about Assembly Bill 841 and the School Energy Efficiency Stimulus Program that was created as a result of its passage. Merez discusses the energy-related challenges schools are now facing and focuses on the types of projects districts should prioritize with state and federal funding. Plus, she'll share the specifics on steps schools can take to secure grant funding. Let's get started. Christine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you tell us a little bit about Cumming and your role as vice president with the Energy and Sustainability team? Of course. Thanks, Chris, for having me today on the podcast. I've been with Cumming Corporation since about 2013. Cumming used to be one of my clients when I was an employee at LA Unified School District for 11 years. And they are primarily a program and project and construction management firm focusing on construction services, but not uh, from the general contracting side. And around 2013, I owned and was running my own project management energy firm. And they recruited me because they were about to grow the company and move into various areas. I actually told them I wanted to do sustainability and energy, in which they replied, we don't really do that. And I said, I think you'd be surprised how much sustainability you actually do in the built environment. So they allowed me, and I've been very fortunate to spend the last eight years building a team of energy professionals and growing a portfolio of about $40 million of work for coming. Being an employee at LAUSD for 11 years and being an electrical engineer, that's where I developed my passion for improving school facilities. I've been through the California Clean Jobs Act, the Prop 39 program, which started six years ago. I was able to really enhance my relationships with the K-12 world and facilities, directors, board members, and really make a big difference when that program started for about 60 school districts throughout the state of California. Wow, yeah. So having the perspective both of working in a major school district on the facility side of things and then now supporting those districts probably gives you a lot of insight on the unique challenges they're facing right now as they try to get ready to reopen. It was very valuable to be on the owner side. And I still carry with me that extra focus of spending public funds responsibly and efficiently, but also being aware of how important it is long-term maintenance and operations of antiquated systems and how much they need now consultants and other advisors to come in and help them to create energy efficiency measures and to establish priorities for where they can spend each dime of the funding that they do get. Thinking about those needs, especially maintaining equipment well beyond its useful life and trying to to keep systems running on shoestring budget in some cases. Can you tell us about some of the key energy and sustainability services that Cumming provides to school districts to help them with those challenges? And, And if you have a couple projects that come to mind, we'd love to hear about those. 
Absolutely. Within our energy and sustainability division, we have core services offered in primarily four distinct areas, energy efficiency and renewable energy being the largest. But we also advise clients on climate and emissions reduction, climate resiliency as well, and really energy efficiency and climate are now coupled together forever. It's really net carbon zero, net energy zero. We also do sustainability strategic planning. So we brought in energy to include other emission generating factors, water, solid waste, to be able to help districts get a more holistic view of sustainability. And then really the last area is social equity and environmental justice, which we help them spend money in underserved areas or equitably being able to benefit all students, faculty, and districts in all areas. A couple examples I'll share that kind of touch upon both of our core services and, and really priorities for school districts across the nation. The first is Valverde Unified School District, and it's an example because it really started in Prop 39 in an area that was very much underserved out in Paris, California. Huge school district, very limited funding. The Prop 39 program allowed it to start doing energy efficiency and start to replace some of the antiquated systems that hadn't been done in 15, 20 years. So it was a huge benefit. They, they had a bond as well, but they lacked the priorities and really focused on energy efficiency, showing the cost benefit of the reduction of future operations of the school. So we spent many millions of dollars doing lighting upgrades and some HVAC at the time until the money ran out. We did energy efficiency first, and we really brought down the total cost cost of energy and the total amount of energy they were using. We follow this with a very large solar, at the time solar, not battery storage, but just solar renewable program. We ended up helping them install 7.2 megawatts across 23 sites. At the time, it was one of the largest solar programs of any K-12 in California. And it took about two years to get it all installed, but it's a good example of how energy efficiency should come first, followed by solar and renewable, and then now these days with battery storage. Yeah, kind of a, a site-level real-world perspective on the loading order and value stacking across different demand-side solutions. So it's, it's really great to hear. Thinking about where we are right now and, and what schools are looking at over the next few months between wrapping up this semester of a very, very different year and then trying to get back to a normal of some kind next year, in your work with these districts during the, the pandemic in the past year, looking from a facility management perspective, what would you say are the most common energy-related challenges that schools are facing as they prepare for this reopening? Stepping out of just focused on energy-related challenges, I think for all school districts, not only in California, but across the country and even the world, is first and foremost is creating a safe environment for students, faculty, and administrators to come back to schools to be present. But really, it's creating an environment that they can trust they're safe in. You know, thank God we have vaccines now and now being approved for much younger, you know, 12 to 15 year olds, some of the vaccines, it's going to be much easier to reopen schools to some level of capacity. So outside of that first priority, I think obviously improved ventilation and filtration alongside with cleaning protocols is the first priority and the first challenge that schools are facing. Just interviewing schools for the AB 841 program in California that we've started talking to some of our clients again, finding out what have they been doing over the last 12 months from being shut down completely to then doing what they can with their own systems to get them to have improved ventilation and also being barraged by new technology and vendors coming at them saying that they should 
try this new technology, anything from ionization to germicidal lighting. And really it, it's been a barrage of information. Many of them have just focused on HVA systems, both from a diagnostic standpoint to get systems up and running and able to receive a MERV 13 size filter, for example, uh, knowing that many of the older systems, they cannot get past MERV 8. So a lot of them have been installing these because this is something that they know and they can start doing right away, getting ready for when schools open entirely. California has just really started the process in various stages. The other area that I see is been a challenge is uh, many school districts don't have an integrated energy management system. They have a hodgepodge of control systems across the board. I know many of them would like to have one system that speaks for everything, but they're not quite there yet. This is another area, I think, alongside with improved HVAC system improvements that will allow them to have a phased opening, have some buildings shut off during the day while they have students in other classrooms. This is going to be key, I think, as we move into the fall and the winter, knowing that we may not have 100% capacity of students back in classrooms and they may have to do this. And a lot of them are just going to have to do this manually. Yeah, you know, that makes sense there really might not be the same level of occupancy or space usage at different types of facilities as there used to be. Having buildings that are adaptable to changes in occupancy by using occupancy sensors or control algorithms or set point adjustments that can mitigate energy usage when the building is less occupied is definitely something that I think a lot of school districts will be looking at, especially when you also consider the increased ventilation requirements that will need to be met just to have buildings open for school this fall. So Christine, I know you've been a very active participant in the California Energy Commission workshops for the SEAS programs from the start, particularly on the HVAC side of things. And thinking about the industry perspective on these programs and what they mean for uh, underserved school districts in California, what do you see as some of the key opportunities and barriers for those districts that are interested in applying for these grant funds? My background and my specialty is really being able to convey to my clients how to take advantage and how to navigate different programs, whether it's a grant program for funding or, or a process by which they have to apply for money throughout the school operations process. So the first thing is, is any program that allows schools to get funding for something is a huge advantage for schools and they need to go all in and really apply for everything they can. But the first thing is understanding that the legislation written for the CS program for both the HVAC and the plumbing side was very restrictive. There was very little the CEC could do to deviate from some of the requirements. I find that for K-12 districts, the first thing is educating them on what they can and can't do with the money and how long it's going to take to get the money and then how to navigate, of course, the upfront application process. The way the legislation was written is all the requirements have to be fulfilled. School districts cannot just apply to get MERV filters or get reimbursed for them. They can't just get CO2 sensors. They can't decide to just do the HVAC assessment and get a diagnostic report and then not follow up with repair work. It is really a complete application for every single step of the legislation. The good thing is that because they allow reimbursement for those districts that started down the route uh, since last August of 2020, started replacing their filters, started making minor repairs, all that money they spent and all the labor and material costs can be reimbursed through this program. And I think off the get-go, that is the one benefit immediately. They can submit their receipts. And if all they do is get reimbursed for work already done, then they're ahead of the game, right? 
The second area is because the legislation has a stipulation to do 25% underserved school districts and communities, they rightly so created round one, which is really their pilot round of funding and the testing of the program to only include kids in underschooled areas. So I think that's very important because the money will get to those districts and those areas that need it most. It'll also fulfill on the largest requirement of the legislation, and it will allow the CEC to test the program and continually improve the application program through the next one, two, or three rounds of funding. So when you look in your CEC crystal ball, what do you see as being covered potentially in those future rounds? Or just if you had to guess, what do you think the CEC will be targeting with funding in subsequent rounds? Where the current first two rounds, maybe one or two rounds of funding is focused only on diagnostic and simple repairs and does not include full replacement of HVAC units, which is where it needs to go. They really do want the next round of funding to include full replacement of HVAC units. And as you and I know, this is really the only way that school districts are not going to increase their overall energy usage. They don't really have time to create more energy efficiency measures or have a a much more targeted sustainability plan to reduce energy in other areas. They're really dependent on trying to get the HVAC units to improve ventilation, but a full unit replacement is where it needs to go. And I'm confident that depending on how many subscribers there are to the program in the first round or so, I think that the CEC will eventually open it up to include full unit replacements. So putting your energy engineer hat back on, for schools that are in a situation where they need both a new HVAC system, whether package unit or chiller, versus agencies that need a new EMS or an EMS to begin with, or one that that ties across all of their facilities rather than having different systems at different buildings, how should agencies go about prioritizing these different types of energy efficiency projects that also are, are kind of necessary to meet their ventilation requirements and air quality requirements while keeping energy costs down? I think the first step and the first requirement of the program is the HVAC assessment. I call it a diagnostic report. This is where school districts need to direct whoever they hire, their consulting firms or contractors, whoever's doing that initial assessment to put everything in it and really prioritize the plan with the future funding in mind. As an example, and this is something I asked the CEC, if we find that we can only put MERV 13 filters in half the units because the other ones are just too old or not operating efficiently, how do we then make that recommendation? They said they will base future funding on the program based on the recommendations of that first assessment report. So it's to the advantage of the districts to ensure and direct their consultants to be able to make those kind of recommendations and lay out a plan of priority to base future funding rounds on. From your perspective in the industry, what should school districts look for when hiring a consultant or contractor to do that assessment? The first thing they need to look for is someone that's not going to charge them an exorbitant amount of money to be able to do an assessment. And I see it all the time. I see companies coming in and really looking to where they can sell something or talking about a product that will solve all their problems and things like that. I caution school districts away from those types of companies and really focus on one who has the qualifications and the technical staff and there are technical requirements for certifications for HVAC diagnostic job descriptions that really understand how to fix systems and repair them. That's the first thing they should look for. And I would tell the school districts to lay out what they're looking for in the report. There are a lot of requirements that have to go in from data collection and analysis, but in the recommendation sections, they can say, we want you to list all the units that 
we would like replaced and make it very clear in the report. And we would like you to put a cost to it because the more you can do up front in using this report as priority planning, the better they will be. Yeah. Um, also, I want to mention the, the assessments can be done with both consultants and general contractors. I don't think that you need to have an HVAC company necessarily be the person that does the assessment. I think it's important that you make the request and ensure that the right people with the right qualifications are the people that you hire. And this first round of funding, at least under the Survivor program, also includes funding for the installation of carbon dioxide monitoring equipment, enhanced MERV filtration. How can schools make sure that they're getting the right contractor to do that type of installation work? So I think they're going to get some guidance once they submit their contractor's cost estimate to be able to get some feedback from the CEC in the rounds that it's going to take to review these estimates and come up with the grant funding. And the good thing about it is they will give 20% contingency on top of every contractor's estimate per site that will allow them to do a lot more. So they don't need to get it 100% right. They just need to get their application in. You're not going to know everything up front, but if you follow the guidelines and you submit what they're looking for, you'll be able to get probably 80% of the funding and repairs that you need. That's my prediction. And thinking about that 20% contingency, which could be pretty important, if there's going to be potentially future funding for the bigger capital measures that this first round really doesn't cover, like a, a full HVAC unit replacement, what is the best way to use that 20% on the, the actual installations? I think it should be focused on the ducting and the things that are going to stay in the system if you upgrade the unit. The CEC hasn't made it clear how much of the existing control systems they're going to pay for for repair. It's really for the school districts to apply for as much as they can. I wouldn't say outright new systems, but they can certainly upgrade components of controls and additional sensors and things like that for sure. Any thoughts or recommendations for, for school districts on how to incorporate the occupant perspective on some of these upgrades and, and changes and adjustments that will need to be made? Well, I think with any of us who've tried to think about occupant comfort in just installing and, and retrofitting HVAC units overall in the last several years, I think it's going to be a little bit tricky in how much information do you give the occupants so that they do feel like they can trust the system. You know, one of the stipulations is the... Uh, the CO2 sensors have to have a panel that you can read out information in the classroom. It can be pretty daunting to teachers in the classroom when they see CO2 rates rise and they get concerned. So I think there's going to have to be some kind of operational standards that we're going to have to help them put in place so that they can listen to teachers, so they can document areas, problem areas, so they can create lessons learned and they can figure out how to respond so that they don't cause unnecessary worry or concern. And there are other things that many new technology that many consultants and contractors have asked the CEC to consider that you hear about the ionization, installation of ionization, um, as well as germicidal lighting. These are both two technologies that should be considered. I, I just don't think the CEC is fully able to get on board and endorse them yet. But I think in the upcoming months, we're going to see benefits of having these two types of technology interwoven into the HVAC systems. So I'm glad you brought up those technologies, that there is a challenge for districts trying to navigate this whole spectrum of products of sanitization or decontamination or, or cleaning or products that have just kind of emerged over the past year and trying to figure out which products really they need, which they don't, which work, which don't work. And then of course, the, the associated cost or operating costs with installing those and using those products. Do you have any advice or perspective for school districts trying to navigate that universe? 
Germicidal lighting has actually been around for 100 years. It actually was how we used to cure diseases back in the last pandemics and things like that. I think when it comes to technology like this, you have to be careful. You're not just getting sold something because a company has decided and has all the, the data they're telling you that it's going to be good. And this is happening a lot with ionization. I can't really say whether all the risks have been presented to school districts on both ionization. I only really know about the germicidal lighting side of it. I just don't think enough data is out there that would give a sense of comfort to school districts. I just think they need to be asking questions at this point. And, and as soon as we get more data, we definitely, as an industry, we need to be making sure that it's out there, it's socialized, and people are educated. And I also think that the CEC is wise in limiting the reimbursement for these types of technology. The only thing they reimburse are if you have germicidal lighting or UVC lights, they will replace the light bulbs. That is a reimbursable in the program because it's a system that's already running. But I don't think they're ready either to say that we're going to pay because they're still doing their own research. So Christine, for schools looking to apply for the survivor funding, um, what is the first step they should take? take an inventory of your HVAC units. Because you have to go out and get a contractor's estimate, you are going to need to reach out to firms. A firm should charge you minimal amount of money, just a few hours to put the estimate together. I don't think you should be committing to pay a lot of money to firms at this point. So that's my first advice. I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions if people want to reach out to me just for advice or how to start the application. Until the CEC opens the application process, we actually all don't know what is going to be required, what information is going to be. But starting with an inventory of your HVAC is probably 80% of the way there. For schools that are interested in applying for this grant, when will they receive the money from the CEC? Once they submit their application and it's approved, the CEC will disperse 50% of the funding upon the award of the grant. And once the school districts have spent that 50%, they will have to then fund the rest of the improvements. And then once the improvements have been installed and verified, they will submit the verification report, and then the CEC will pay them back for the second half of that funding. So it's important that school districts don't think they're getting 100% of the money up front, and they will need to have some general fund reserves to make it all the way through the program. What will schools need to do to close out their participation in this first phase of the grant program? What kind of reporting will they need to do to make sure that they get the money from the CEC to cover the remainder of the costs? The final step and requirement of the CEC program is the final verification report. That report has to be completed by one of two certifications being a TAB certified HVAC technician. It's similar to functional testing when you start up a system and you balance it. So that verification report has to be signed and certified by an engineer as well. And once that's completed, you would submit it to the CEC online and there may be other documentation required relative to the money that you've spent. So I imagine purchase orders and any consult, uh, any contractors that you've paid, and then it gets approved and then the money would route back to the school district upon completion of that process. Well, Christine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your expertise and your perspectives with us. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. Remember that reducing your energy use today means securing a safer, more affordable, and sustainable tomorrow. For more information on energy efficiency opportunities that can help you save energy and money, visit SoCalREN.org or call 877-785-5500.
2237.